Psychedelic assisted post-traumatic stress disorder therapies. That is what we're going to cover today on the Biology Brief. This is episode eight. I am Kylie Grant. I'm the CEO of OleoLive. This is Jim Cardelli, the CTO of OleoLive. And on this podcast, we just talk about uh, new research, groundbreaking research, interesting things to us that we think would be fun to kind of talk about in a longer format style, in a longer format style. Um, and so we thought this topic would be really interesting. And the, the key to the discussion today is it really centers around PTSD and not some of the other things that MDMA or psilocybin or any other of the psychedelics would be um, are being studied for for therapy. So one of the papers that uh, we're going to kind of use as the, the center point for this discussion um, was published in Nature Medicine. It is by authors Mitchell and Doblin. And I think the uh, study is called the MAP-1 study. And then there's another study called the MAP-2 study. There was a follow-up on it. Whenever you read about the MAP-1 study, what stands out as the biggest glaring flaw within the thing to you? Um, I don't think I saw a major flaw, so you'll have to correct me. I don't know that it's corrective. It's just as I was reading the first mm -hmm. page, something stood out to me as being a huge issue in the data here. And that is how can you control for placebo? Oh, yeah, that's, that's no pun intended. That's a no brainer. I thought it was going to be deeper than that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. This is the biggest problem with any of the psychedelic assisted type trials is that um, anybody who uh, takes the placebo will know they didn't take the hallucinogen. Well, compounded by, they talked about it in the discussion and let me pull up the numbers because the numbers are staggering. Somewhere in here. Right here. So, although anecdotal, and I would argue this is not anecdotal, at least seven of 44 participants in the placebo group inaccurately believed they had received MDMA. So you know what that means? 37 of the 44 knew they were on placebo. That's that's a obviously a huge problem, and and the and and we need to take one step back. So uh, the context we're discussing, of course, is MDMA. And what is MDMA? Methyl, methyl, methylene dioxymethamphetamine. All right. So it's it's in the amphetamine class, and so we're talking about psychedelics. MDMA is actually not a hallucinogen per se. It is a member of a family of, of drugs that are known as psychoactives. And, and for those in the audience, what's psychoactive? I'm drinking Diet Coke, and it has caffeine, and caffeine is psychoactive. So Caffeine's considered a psychoactive. Yeah, so psychoactive is any type of nicotine, any type of, of drug or compound that impacts your activity of your brain. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, MDMA and some of the traditional hallucinogens do much more than simply make you a little jittery if you had too much. Mm -hmm. So MDMA is a, is a class of a, a very interesting compound. We're going to focus on it at the start, and then we're going to broaden it to look at a second class that has been very useful for intractable depression. That's mm -hmm. called, as you mentioned, psilocybin from mm -hmm. magic mushrooms. And its, its focus is comparable, um, but again, the, the broad class of psychoactive, psychedelic type agents include MDMA, although MDMA is not considered a classical hallucinogen. So those who take MDMA, a lot of things will happen, 
but one of them is you're not going to have necessarily broad, distorted uh, perceptions of the universe. You won't talk to aliens, etc. Well, one and MDMA is more of a, a man-made compound, that's, whereas psilocybin yes, is occurs is naturally natural, in that's, nature. That's correct. So let's talk more about MDMA. Um, and well, let's take one step back and talk about post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. itself. So, what is your 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 sense of that, and and do you suffer from it at all? I mean, not that I know of, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure I would be aware of it if I if I did. However, I think it's worth mentioning that this is a very complicated disorder, and this is a very complicated topic that is not just addressable through, you know, one singular pathway. It, it's or one it, simple singular discussion that we're going to have today. Right. So I don't right. want to don't let don't for those of you out there. This is going to be a high altitude overview. Uh, a major, you know, preview of a discussion. Hopefully, we'll have more podcasts on this and go into a little more detail. Yeah. But this is more of a of a, a preview of what 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 we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, and you know, the the authors of the paper they they talk about it, and you know, it can be comorbid with several things: childhood trauma, alcohol abuse, substance use disorders, depression, suicidal ideation, dissociation. There's a lot of things that may trigger it, whether it's from combat experience or it's from any sort of childhood trauma or who knows what rape victims any type of any type of you absolutely right, any type of trauma um, you witnessed uh, somebody get run over by a car right um, so so the it's very complicated and again we're not going to try to give you simple things that's not what we do we're going to we're going and not, we're not going to dummy it down we're just going to give you a sense of of why this field is exploding and and the possibilities for using yeah. these types of agents for treatments of of uh, not neurodegenerative diseases but psychiatric type diseases well, like I, post-traumatic stress disorder and i may have a, a flawed understanding of what it actually is but it seems like what ptsd is at its core is the inability to release fear fear-related ideations, more or less, or have them triggered by certain, you know, whether it be therapy can trigger them, or, you know, gunfire if you happen to be a combat uh, a combat veteran. Um, something, you know, in that vein, and, and I don't know that there's a very, like a really clear definition that you could lump everybody with PTSD into a box again, and say, I, you have this. Again, we're not clinicians. Uh, we're, we're reasonably intelligent people who think about stuff. But you're absolutely right. It's very complex, uh, and you brought up an interesting idea. One one of the things is so it, everybody goes through. I wouldn't call it trauma, but everybody goes through uh, problems in their lives uh, and, and memories. But most of these memories or most of these actions that occur in real time, you can resolve. You can put away in the memory bank. You can deal with it at an emotional level. Post-traumatic stress disorder is something that's in your brain, can lead to a lot of symptoms, including suicide, and suicide rates among uh, military is sky high, among police is sky high. So clearly, uh, unresolved memory placement is, is very, very important. And so what this therapy, and of course, some of the therapies available are cognitive behavioral therapy. They try to have people relive their fears. They want you to be able to sit with the the scenes that you remember in an emotional way without shutting them down so you can actually resolve the situation. But historically, uh, the success rate for t- successful treatment where one really can get back to a normal life is not very high. And that's why uh, MDMA-assisted therapy is, is could be potentially very, very important in breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, so traditionally, I think some of the other trials that have been done for... PTSD included mainly SSRIs, 
which would be sertraline and serotonin. Yeah, ser selective serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors. And the interesting data I saw on SSRI use for PTSD, there was between a 45 and 55 percent dropout rate yeah. amongst participants in those studies. And with MDMA, it was two percent. Yeah, so uh, based on that alone, you would have to say, okay, well, they're, they're making at least enough progress to where they're not fearful or triggered by the therapy alone. Yeah, so this is, this is why, and we're going to get into some of this because it's really fascinating how, um, and we're going to talk about the actual tr regimen of treatment. We're not talking mm -hmm. about uh, 2,500 sessions over five years. We're talking about um, a, a reasonably short period of time with these sessions we'll describe and amazing I consider them amazing with the placebo effect aside sure but yeah. and that's important uh, because realize that during the treatment itself you and this is we're not advocating that you run to the store Walmart doesn't sell MDMA but obviously it's available but we're not proposing you do this this is under very strict requirements and regulations you have to visit with a psychiatric team a couple of times before you actually do a dose mm -hmm. they help you to prepare for what's going to happen and after the the session itself where you're given MDMA there's a couple of integrative sessions where you relive what you went through and you try to form a different pattern of thought that will allow that memory now to to lay uh, in, in a feral, feral field and not and not move again. Well, I think one thing that you can point to in defense of the lack of placebo control is if you look at the effect size between paroxetine and its placebo, which paroxetine would not have as subjective of a placebo control just because there's no psychedelic effect associated with it, you see an effect uh, of, or an effect size of 0.56, whereas in the MDMA-assisted therapy, it's 0.91. So it's almost two times the effect yeah. size. So whenever you can compare what is close to apples to apples, not necessarily, you know, apples to crab apples or something like that, yeah. then you can you could say, okay, there is, there is at least a, a similar effect in effect sizes and reduction of what they call the CAPS score, which right. is which is associated with, uh, you know, uh, basically triggering of PTSD, like you could you kind of boil it down to that. Um, and so I think you could defend the, pl the lack of placebo control, you know, in comparison to uh, an SSRI trial. Well, if you look at if you look at some of the data, and, and we're not going to go into details of, of how these scores are, are done, it's DSM-5, CAP-5, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, it's a severity score, and, and it's basically tests that they're given that uh, on a scale of, let's say, 1 to 10, 10 being you're very susceptible to this, this fearful event in your life, mm -hmm. all the way to you resolved it, and it's just like the time you got hit in the face with a baseball and, and nothing happened sure. other than you had a bloody nose. So uh, that aside, the other thing to keep in mind that, that the placebo, in this sense, those that weren't given it, their actual um, scores went down too, and, and that's not simply due to a placebo effect. Mm -hmm. It's also due to the fact that they were under psychiatric care right and the same kind of care that is given to people who historically have had P PTSD and and now are a better resolution so I think what we have to keep in mind we can't show you the figure but we'll cite the papers for you to look at yourself that the the change in uh, in, in the MDMA treated group is so much greater than the placebo group and I, they use the word astounding and again I'm not a, a psychiatrist I'm not a, a neuroscientist but people in this area were, were essentially blown away. And, and one thing before we go a little bit more on this, this the latest one, which is a, a phase three trial, 
uh, looking at both moderate and severe PTSD done by Mitchell et al. Um, there's good reason to think. This is a phase three trial, so given the fact that it's successful, it would not be surprising to me that within the year 2024 that this becomes an FDA-approved model for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And if you had told me mm, even 20 years ago that hallucinogens and psychedelics are going to now be used for treatment regimens, people would have laughed. So we've come a really, really long way from um, the hallucinogens, and including MDMA, which mm -hmm. I said isn't a hallucinogen. It's sure. a Schedule One drug. So in 1970, Richard Nixon, anybody remember Richard Nixon? Richard Nixon actually uh, was able to pass a law where uh, all of these psychedelics, LSD, uh, mescaline, psilocybin, uh, MDMA, which was just starting out then, mm -hmm. all of these drugs were put into a Schedule One, which they have no health benefits and they're very dangerous, right. Right. which means studies that were happening in the 50s and the 60s. It couldn't continue. Couldn't continue. And yeah. those studies, and it's sad if you think about it, those studies are 75 years, 65 years old. Some of those studies were already showing that these drugs could impact alcoholism, mm -hmm. cigarette smoking, etc. Yeah. And they were shut down uh, at that point. But in the 90s, they started building up. And, and this is not, you know, it sounds like it, this is something that just happened this year. The study of some of these groups with with psilocybin and with MDMA, they've been occurring now for 15 years or more. Well, interestingly, talking about alcoholism, I think in the MAP2 study, they actually allowed alcohol use disorder as one of the few uh, criteria inclusion that they didn't, criteria, and one yeah. of the few inclusion criteria, and they saw a reduction of alcoholism yeah. associated with the, in the treatment group. Um, which is interesting and not surprising considering not, some of the other data not, out not there. Not surprising. So uh, again, well, let's our, talk about the treatment reg yeah, yeah, regimen right, right. quickly, and 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 because I think it's interesting, and the associated therapy is also interesting, mm -hmm. and being able to tease apart how effective the associated therapy is versus the MDMA, and it seems as though you know should there be an FDA approval, it will probably be an approval system and not just here take this on your own in your bedroom. Good yeah, luck. I, I think that's. That's, you're not going to see that for, well, people can do it illegally, but I, I'm warning you that if you suffer from depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and you hear this broadcast, and if you think going out taking MDMA is going to help you do that, do not do that. We do not advocate that. <laughs> That's very true. So the, the, uh, the system that they gave they put them through was essentially four different therapies, and it was associated. They had a, a, a preparatory session mm -hmm. where they educated them, what you may feel this is may what may what may go on and they basically had a shaman a shaman like experience what's the shaman and well in a guide let's call it a spiritual guide like spiritual guide yeah. i like it um and they also made sure to taper off of any existing ssris or or psychiatric medication in advance of uh mdma treatment Probably for several reasons. First reason would be how would you know what's effective if you didn't taper off of it. Second, all to avoid any potential interactions and everything else. Um, and so they they put them on these four therapy sessions. At the end of the fourth fourth therapy session, they did an evaluation. I think one of the biggest weaknesses in the study is they only followed up with them for about two months, and after that, we don't know. So is this a lasting effect? Is this something that happen has to happen time, time, every that's couple a, years? That's important. Time will tell. Time will tell. I mean, and the thing is, you know, the, the MAP2 study has the same limitation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm sure that's a funding problem as much as anything. Um, but we need to know long term, is this a one and done? 
you know, is it, do you need to do it yearly? Is it like at will? Hey, I feel bad. I need to go and have some help. Um, it, it's, now, it's hard to say. These are great questions. So, you know, again, we, this is not, we're not reviewing all of the, the history of trials and why MDMA is now the standard of care. Sure. We're simply saying this is, and in, in, in actually for the FDA, it's breakthrough therapy, uh, which given the history of the United States in terms of, of outlawing drugs and stuff is, is really breakthrough in, yeah, in a absolutely. sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. But let's, let's continue on a little bit on, on, on and why, and this is important because, again, it's not somebody who showed up in a doctor's office and mm-hmm. said, you know, man, uh, I, I was in combat and I, I'm thinking of killing myself, mm-hmm. and the doc gave him MDMA and said, well, go home and tell me how you feel. It's yeah. not like aspirin. Mm-hmm. So this is really regulated, strong inclusion criteria, which may mm-hmm. be one of the weaknesses. Yeah. But all of this has to be done. Why, and why is that important? It's important because you want to have scientific rigor for what you're doing. You want to be able to reproduce it. You want to be able to show that the conclusions aren't just made up and falsified. There's limitations to these studies. Yeah. But before you approve a drug for whatever use, you really want to have some really solid evidence it's doing what it's doing. And one of the things we're going to get mm-hmm. to, because I, I find as a, as a molecular biologist, I find this even more interesting. We're talking about the psychiatric impact of these drugs. Mm-hmm. But we haven't even touched on it. We'll get that in a minute. What are these drugs doing in your mind and your brain to actually allow you to do that? That, to me, is very fascinating. Th- that is interesting. But we'll get to that in a minute. So let, let's kind of finish up. What is involved in, in this assisted therapy that you started to talk about? Um, uh, tell me. <laughs> well, they, you go through a preparation, yeah. right? And it could be one, two, three sessions. It depends. Um, the number of trial participants are usually 100 to 200 now, and it, mm-hmm. that will increase. The inclusion criteria are important. Uh, because the drug itself and, and the class of psychoactive drugs such as MDMA and psilocybin, if you're already schizophrenic mm-hmm. or you're bipolar, you're probably not going to be included mm-hmm. because these drugs at some levels actually lead to what some psychiatrists cause, call a controlled psychotic break. And so mm-hmm. clearly if you're already susceptible to that, you're not going to be a candidate. Mm-hmm. But, but those people also suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and mm-hmm. from intractable depression. So keep in mind that we're limiting our scope of study to people that really are, I don't want to call them cherry pick because PTSD is important, mm-hmm. but really a select audience. And we're going to see how broadly applicable these drugs are. Right. And as you pointed out, how long do they actually last? Yeah. If they only last two months, does that mean um, patients have to go back every couple of months and have this redone? Mm-hmm. We haven't even begun to talk about the cost of therapy because MDMA-assisted mm-hmm. therapy when, when you're on these, these drugs and, and you're tripping, it, it's a four to eight hour experience and you can't be left alone. So you have mm-hmm. to have somebody there that entire time. And as you know, the healthcare system we have now is very expensive and that's very expensive. So these are issues that we're gonna have to, we're yeah. not gonna talk about today, but issues that as we move forward, the society is gonna have to deal with. Yeah. How do we broaden the approach? There's a lot of people suffering from this. Uh, how, how do we pay for that? And we'll, we'll come up to some of the solutions that are becoming up, but, yeah. but anyway, yeah. so the MDA, uh, MDMA approach, uh, and this, as I mentioned, it's probably the most advanced approach in terms of close to being um, FDA approved as a clinical trial. So you believe MDMA is, is MDMA one of is, will be the first one. And this is actually, we're hoping to have someone, an expert in this area, visit us soon on a podcast, and we'll, we'll discuss this again. But mm-hmm. um, that yeah, person in, in other areas. In other areas, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've only talked about MDMA, and we've only talked about it in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to broaden the topic a little bit. So uh, historically, the, the hallucinogens that have been studied 
uh, and, and goes way back even to the, as I alluded to, the 50s and the 60s. They include a wide variety of psychedelics. That includes mescaline, which is from a cactus plant. That includes uh, dimethyltryptamine, which is actually a synthetic, but also found in a, a, a high ayahuasca uh, treatment regimen. Yeah. And, and, and all of these, whether it's... Uh, also in certain frogs. In certain frogs. Yeah. Um, and, mm. and psilocybin is found in mushrooms. One of the things we're not going to go into, but it's interesting side topic these are historically used drugs in indigenous tribes around the world yeah. for spiritual healing uh religious experiences not only mm. post-traumatic stress disorder although i imagine if you're a cave person and you're 30 you're probably suffering from that already sure. being chased yeah. around yeah. um but but it's a very very rich history but so we talked about mdma the other one i think we we can focus on again based on clinical trial data yeah. is, is psilocybin but before mm. we go there let's talk a little bit about um MDMA seems to have a major impact, and, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's good, right? So yeah. if you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and you're no longer having these ideations, mm -hmm. suicidal thoughts, you're getting along yeah. with your wife, you're not triggered by gunshots or backfires in right. cars, um, how does MDMA actually work? Well, what, I think the commonality do? amongst MDMA, psilocybin, and maybe some of the other ones is it allows introspection at a level that you don't get in day-to-day -day life. It allows self-compassion. And the authors call that That's out. This is not exactly my idea. Right. The authors call this out. There's greater self-compassion and less PTSD and or trauma-related shame and anger. They're allowing you to open up to what is triggering the fear. That, that you can sit with your emotions. You can sit with your emotions. And yeah. so MDMA is an interesting drug because, and we're going to talk about psilocybin in, uh, in a minute, but MDMA hits a variety of neural networks in the brain. Probably one of the important ones is, is serotonin. Mm -hmm. And serotonin signaling is what the SSRIs do. They're thought to modify levels of serotonin, mm -hmm. which changes your mood. Now, of course, these uh, drugs also have negative side effects, and that's why some of these therapies might be better. Well, but, and, that, and it says reduced serotonin transporter levels has been shown to pre predict PTSD. That's, that's exactly right. So this drug is interesting because it's multimodal. Mm -hmm. It hits not only serotonin receptors, it hits dopamine receptors, and dopamine receptors are really, um, we're learning more and more about what these neurotransmitters do, but dopamine allows you to get up in the morning and go, I'm gonna hunt for stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's primordial, it's like, uh, I'm hungry, I need to find food. Uh, and also, and a couple of other include oxytocin. Oxytocin mm -hmm. is, is you know, probably why new moms love the kids so much because you get this oxy. It's the cuddle homer. MDMA, and again, we're not advocating this, but as you probably know in the listening audience, MDMA is part of rave parties. Mm -hmm. And many times at these rave parties where it's MDMA assisted, dangerous drug, you need to drink a lot of water. And it also has potential cardiovascular effects. Even in these trials, those, those were- uh, Transient cardiovascular. Transient, yes, yeah. but, but it can't it can lead Which to means only while you're in the midst of That's the trip. That's exactly right. So it's MDMA, because of all of these effects, is called the, the cuddle drug. So not only does it allow you to feel better about yourself, it allows you to sit with your emotions in a negative way. It allows you to interact with people and socialize in, in a much, it opens you up to the world. Now, no, we're going to talk about psilocybin, and that drug really opens you up to the world. But you're absolutely right. These, these drugs are thought to cause changes 
at a global scale in neural networks in your brain. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's suffering from depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, they're sort of locked into a state where they're thinking uh, negative thoughts and they rebound and that's cognitive, cognitive function saying I'm, I'm worthless, I'm shameful, I can't deal with this, and they're locked in. What these drugs do is they unlock your brain. In fact, they're actually thought to to totally open up your, your mind and connectivity where different parts of your brain are communicating with your executive function. Yeah, so it's called and, out here in, in saying MDMA enhances the extinction of fear memories in mice at least through increased expression of BDM, BDNF. And what is that? What is a brain-derived neurotropic factor. And what does that do? Well, in the amygdala, amygdala and human, yeah, amygdala, I always say that. I think that's how they say it on Waterboy. I actually like that better. Uh, I think that's how they say it on Waterboy. Um, and human neuroimaging studies have demonstrated that MDMA is associated with attenuated amygdala, bold activity, and, and bold is blood oxygenation level dependent activity in response to fearful images. So, you know, that's kind of a high level um, uh, description of what may be happening as a result of taking MDMA. Well, think about, and, and the, the amygdala is very important in terms of, of uh, it's, it's involved in fight and flight. It's the thing that says, you know, I think that's a saber-toothed tiger and you better fucking run away quickly, right? That's what that does. So it's, it's, a, it's a center of emotional uh, interactions. And MDMA doesn't necessarily quell that as much as it says, I'm just not afraid right now. I'm, I'm an, MDMA is, is in, at rave parties, it's called a cuddle puddle. Because you get 20 people in a cuddle, in a puddle, and they're hugging each other because they love each other, which is kind of strange and potentially dangerous, as you can yeah, imagine. Yeah. But that's what this drug does. So it opens up empathy, for, not only for your surrounding members on, on this planet, but also for yourself. Yeah. And that allows you then to situate yourself into a, a position where you can see that event happening and you're still dealing with your emotions and you're able to resolve it. Yeah. You forgive yourself, you forgive that situation. So Yeah, it's in the, it, just one last thing on that. It, it's, it's thought, uh, according to the authors here, that it, it opens up uh, uh, an oxytocin-dependent critical period of neuroplasticity that typically closes after adolescence. So you could reframe that to say, it makes you more childlike. I'm glad you brought that up because in one of the things that we're going to send out, uh, and send it's it out. a we're going to send a link out. Oh, okay. It's it's from um, it's a, a nature thing, and it, uh, nature is a is a journal, a very high a top tier journal. But in this article, it goes over and summarizes many things we're talking about today in mm -hmm. in layman's terms, in the sense that you can read it and come away with the impression. So no, you're absolutely right. I think that's, uh, and, and that's actually described a little bit in this article where oxytocin does put you back. Because remember as a kid, I mean, you're so, the, the world is a wonderful place to be in. You walk around in awe of everything, right? And as you get older, you consolidate, your ego takes over. You have what is called a default, default mode network mm -hmm. that basically, if you're resting and it's like you, your thoughts are all contained, you're not having, you know, you're just sort of like resting. And, but, but it's all, your, your ego and that network itself controls your thought process so mm -hmm. you know as we're sitting in this room you know we're, we're maybe there's things happening we're not aware of because of that, sure. that process mm -hmm. so let, let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, psilocybin there's and psilocybin for uh, depression is is really a hot topic too and I think that will be the next one that probably will be clinically approved. One of the leaders in the field, and it's a link we'll have in Nature Medicine, is a guy named Robert uh, Carhart, uh, Carhart Robin. Harris. Yeah, Robin. Robin, Robin Carhart Robin, Harris. Yeah, Carhart yeah. Harris. 
Um, that person has is, is, uh, been in this field now 15, 20 years and has some really, really interesting ideas. He's got an, an idea that, and we're talking now about psilocybin, mm-hmm. he calls it the rebus model. So it's basically it, it uh, relaxes your mind so that the psychedelic compounds can have this major effect. And I've alluded to this neural network, this sort of default mode where you're resting and you have some thoughts come in, but it's your memories. It's not like you have tons of flashbacks from your childhood, good memories, bad. You're just sort of resting. Oh, there's a fly. Oh, the lights are on. Um, but what happens with this drug is it opens up connectivity. And this is, you can do this, you can measure this with a variety of uh, modalities, mm-hmm. EGs and uh, 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 magnetic resonance imaging. You can actually change, see changes in neural activity in your mind. And what psilocybin does is it pretty much says, so you're connected here? Well, we're going to introduce you to a whole family of perceptions and things. Here. How does it do that? It, it basically activates a particular receptor called 5-HT2A, uh, uh, which is a serotonin receptor. It activates that, and that's found predictably in the areas for this default mode network. That's where those receptors are found. So people are hmm. depressed, stay in this network. It's like, I'm a worthless. I, I I'm never going to get out of it. Everything's negative. Oh, is it cloudy again today? And that's just where your mind is at. You can't get out of it. When, when you do psilocybin, it hits those receptors and opens them up, not only in the default network, but all the other eight or nine networks you have. And so now you're smelling colors, you're seeing sounds. It opens you up to memories and pathways that you normally don't experience. Does it... Does that last? Does that, does that effect last, or is that a temporary thing? It's interesting you bring it up because clearly, as, as the psychedelics act over a period of time for psilocybin in a in a uh, the trials themselves, you probably reach the peak at two or three hours. Mm-hmm. Trips last for about six hours, but it's thought that some of this activity can continue on. This feel good activity about yourself, a whole different appreciation of who you are, the wonderment of the world, that continues on potentially for months. Part of that, and you alluded to this, and when you brought up BDNF. Mm-hmm. So what some of these drugs are thought to do aren't simply just to rewire. Imagine taking all the wiring in this building and just rewiring and weird yeah. things happen, right? They actually cause neurons to change connectivities. There's a saying that... So they add wires. Neurons that fire together wire together. So if you open up connectivity between different neurons, mm-hmm. they send out these dendrites and connections, you form different types of networks. Yeah. You're aware of a much deeper persona of who you really are and, and what really matters in your life. Yeah. And again, these these are uh, been through a variety of uh, clinical trials. They mm-hmm. look as effective, if not more effective, uh, even than MDMA in terms of, uh, of clinical depression. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I've seen other uh, mushrooms and mushroom extracts that seem to increase BDNF too. I think that there's some claims that maybe uh, lion's mane and some of these other like non-psychedelic mushrooms tend to see, I haven't seen any clinical data, it's, it's all anecdotal and stuff I've read about, that you can see an increase in BDNF as a result of taking that too. So the, you that's know, exactly right. So that's, a, I mean, to me, that's a fascinating area. So, you know, we always think of the brain as like, well, you got neurons and if you hold your breath too much, you know, you're going to kill some neurons. You're going to, that's not true. You can develop new neurons. More importantly, you can develop new, new neural connections, mm-hmm. physical mm-hmm. connections. So this is, there, it's called neuroplasticity. So mm-hmm. neurons can change, whether it's a good change in terms of what we're talking about here potentially or a bad change if you're addicted to methamphetamine don't do that anymore mm-hmm. but if you're addicted to meth you've already really gone on the negative side of things and you're yeah. destroying connections that are actually important yeah. psilocybin is interesting because it's actually called um it increases at least the the author that robin thinks that it increases brain entropy 
it actually causes dissociation, and in many ways it does. Psilocybin. Psilocybin is thought to increase brain entropy. So now you have these very carefully constructed neural networks that are operating to let you get by in the world. It's like, I'm saved, the world's all about me. Oh, I mean, I'm all about the, that kind of thing. And then suddenly all of these things open up. And it really is, and, and it's alluded to, if you look at some of the, if you look at some of the, the uh, hallucin, hallucinations that people have doing psilocybin, mm-hmm. it's not inconsistent with those having psychotic breakdowns. Obviously, if you're in an office and you have uh, goggles on and you have headphones on and you listen to nice music and you've got two, two psychiatrists and helpers are saying everything's okay, you're going to deal with this, yeah. that's different than having a psychotic breakdown. But think about this. <laughs> you, it, almost, it almost suggests in a way that, that to, really, to really rewire your brain to get back to normal, you have to disorganize the room. I mean, think of it think of it as a, as as a room in your house. Well, like your garage, yeah. yeah. Pull everything like out. Gar- That's yeah. exactly right. So think of your garage as like it's kind of organized, but I could get by. I can't really fit my car in. I, maybe I'll move this over here. What does that do? Nothing. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Tear it down build it up yeah. and that's what some of these drugs might actually do in a, in a, yeah. in a perhaps even a physiological in the way. hypothesized way that seems like I yeah mean, under again un, under supervision under supervision uh, under sure. care yeah. you don't go around doing mda in traffic uh, that's so you talk briefly we could talk about the the adverse events that were reported to be associated with these these uh clinical trials which remarkably were essentially nothing no one died. That's all. I mean, good. there was there was no increase in suicidal ideation. Correct. There was some increase in blood pressure, maybe a few things like that. Tachycardia, your heart is racing, but yeah. but MDMA is an amphetamine. That's yeah. What you expect. Right. Right. But they're all transient. They're not permanent. Um, it, that's the beauty of these two therapies: is they seem to be incredibly safe incredibly safe under conditions under at which they were used that, sure and then let's be very clear so the people who are doing mdma are giving mdma that was uh, pharmaceutical grade those that are doing psilocybin that was actually purified and known exactly what it was mm-hmm. this is different than going to your street corner drug dealer and saying well give me some cocaine that's that's uh you know laced with fentanyl i mean so so the side so don't don't go out and do that but these are very very well controlled and so that that's very important so well controlled that in fact in the map one study the placebo group had more aes than the treatment group yeah that's that's pretty controlled now one of the (laughs) things you brought up in in terms of the side effects and one of the things that's very interesting is the hypothesis not been shown yet but these drugs that seem to act on these particular um, receptors, let's say HT2A, that's where LSD in- interacts, with, and, that's, and, and that's obviously a classic hallucinogen, that the argument is, can we separate this melting of the mind and this reorganization of all these networks, mm-hmm. can we separate that from changing PTSD or intractable depression? And there are now a couple of companies that are working on hitting those receptors all right, so without causing hallucinations. Oh, without causing hallucinations. Because think about this. If you had a, it, so if I told you, Kylie, I think you really need to go in for treatment, and you're gonna, you're gonna be tripping your mind out for six or eight hours, and I, mm-hmm. you know, you'd probably be okay. As opposed to, listen, you're gonna go in, and uh, and I'll give you an example. So dimethyltryptamine um, can be in, under appropriate conditions can be snorted, and you will go from zero to hero in hallucinatory world, mm-hmm. and that lasts for 15 minutes. And you can still potentially have the same benefits. Right. So these are things that right. drug designers are looking at is do we really have to have someone sit there 
and uh, hallucinate. And hallucinate for eight hours. Can we get our point across in a neural way? Can we get our point across in lesser time or with less hallucinations? And that, that that's not known yet. Sure. I mean, maybe yeah. that's are the whole part of How it. important are the that's hallucinations correct. to the effect? That's correct. And can you hallucinate for 15 minutes that's and still correct. get the same benefit? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to do that whole, the whole trip? It, it's, it is an interesting conundrum there. It is. And, and some of the, the again, I, I alluded to the um, preview articles that are in, in Nature. They talk a lot about that in terms of, of can we come up, and, and that's really be advancing not very quickly, um, can we separate out the psychological effects, positive effects, from the hallucinatory effects mm-hmm. of these drugs? And yeah. that, that's a question that no one knows yet. I, I kind of think maybe not. Well, but that really is an attempt to drugify a natural product, isn't it? Well, now you're onto something really interesting because, um, you know, you could go out and grow mushrooms in cow dung, and people yeah. do. I'm not going to say who, but people go out and do that all the time, and yes, that's psilocybin. Or you can drugify. Now, what's the advantage of drugifying it? Sure. I mean, yeah, we all know there's there's profits associated with profits drugification. Profits associated yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah. So now Mother Nature, and again, I'm, I'm we're a profit-making company. Sure. Yeah, I'm but not. But still, yeah. you have to think about it. That's obvi- The intent isn't, oh, we really want to help people per se. Also included in that is we also want to make money because nothing's yeah. free. we got to do trials. Yeah. So, you know, there is, I don't know how you're going to ever FDA approve psilocybin and ban it from cow dung. You're not. Yeah. But, but still, you're absolutely right. They're trying to come up with designer drugs. Yeah. That, and, and in many ways, that's good, right? If you sure. could actually have the same impact of that well, drug. Well, if you could broaden the population of patients that would acceptably use the drug and therefore benefit them, and not then have to drugification, sit in a session yeah. For six, yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. Because you're, gonna, you're going to automatically exclude a bunch of people that do not want to trip. That's that's like in immediately. So, I mean, I think that if you can open it up to them, there is some benefit. However, as we know, like there are negatives associated with FDA approving a particular compound because then it rules it out for other uses. And so you <laughs> could exactly have, right. you know, you could eliminate the natural one in favor of the designed one just because the designed one has more drug well as an example um uh, everybody in the audience knows about cbd Mm -hmm. and and a little bit about the history of cbd it's an it's a non-psychoactive compound from uh, from marijuana um but there's a drug company that actually made it into a drug epidiolex and now the fda doesn't want know what to do with cbd in food substances and its supplements because now it's a drug right so it's it's a conundrum but i don't view that as bad because if cbd has some effect and it clearly for the for the epilepsy that these kids were suffering from, the CBD they made seemed to really be effective. So it's something society has to work through, but that's what science in many ways does. It pushes, it pushes things to the forefront that then that uh, the social activists and politicians have to deal with for ethical reasons and moral re- reasons, financial yeah. reasons, et cetera. But that's a good thing. Let the science push it ahead and let society And it's bigger than just good. a conspiracy from Big Pharma. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Which is what yeah. some people chalk it up to. Well, and you know what? You just brought up something very – I think we're going to have a podcast on this because, you know, one of the things about um, Big Pharma is, uh, for instance, cancer treatment that big pharma people already have a cure for cancer so let's imagine i was big pharma i'm not we're little pharma we're not mm. even little farmer we're mm. really really little farmer yeah. let's imagine i had a cure for cancer and my daughter had that cancer you're telling me i wouldn't save my daughter i mean the whole argument that 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 there's cures out there and yeah. you're just trying to make money is well not only that you studied cancer for how long and like you would probably long. be <laughs> fairly well aware of it right yeah so yeah all right i think that how, how long are we 
We're about 40 minutes. Okay, I think we're pretty, think pretty we're, deep into I think, this. I yeah. think we're good. And you know what? It, it tells me we can't cover everything at, at one time. We'll revisit this in different podcasts, uh, you know, auxiliary yeah. or whatever. But um, it's, it's a truly fascinating area. We've only touched on it. Um, so Very much more, level. so yeah. much more to be learned. So it's it's a turning point in the history of, of of drugs that went from free use back in the '60s, and then was slammed down in the '70s. No more research was done. A black period there, and now they're coming back, and now the FDA is behind it. So it's yeah. going to be a remarkable change, I think, in terms of treatment. And again, um, it's something to keep your eyes out and for. It definitely ha- it gives us something to look forward to for what is traditionally a very tough to treat disorder. Um, and also I think it shows that the FDA is malleable and flexible in what it will begin to look at as long as the data precedes it. That's correct. And like we're seeing the data precede this and we're seeing it become like hard to ignore and therefore like we're beginning to get the tension of everything. So um, yeah, if you enjoy this kind of content, let us know. I think that this is really interesting. I think this is uh, something we'll continue to touch on. We're trying to bring in an, an expert in this field to actually talk to in a lot more detail about PTSD and other disorders that psychedelic assisted therapy can help with. Um, once again, uh, Jim and I are with a company called Oleolive. We make a product called Oligen that you can go and look at at, at oleocanthal.co. I know that's a lot of O's in a row, but Oligen contains oleocanthal. Oleocanthal is found naturally in extra virgin olive oil. It is one of the most potent natural phenolic compounds that we know of. Um, it's good for everything under the sun. I know that sounds like a panacea, panacea, but it really is one of the better things that has broad, broad potential. Uh, go check it out at oleocanthal.co. And uh, other than that, I, yep. I partner, I think we're good. All right. See you next time. See you Bye. next time.